Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. Alex Pearson in here on The Roy Green Show. You're listening to The Chorus Radio Network. Great to have you here with us this weekend. Got a busy, busy show. Of course, Roy Green is off. He will be back here with you next week. And I think if you like Roy, you can consider me the smaller, tinier female version of him. I think we think along the same lines. Do you think we have uh, such a thing as Canadian values? It has been a topic of conversation across this country all week long, and that's after a conservative leadership candidate, Kelly Leach, floated the idea that Canadian immigrants should be screened for anti-Canadian values. And, of course, the perpetually outraged immediately declared, well, their outrage. Of course they did. In their eyes, there is really no such thing as a Canadian value, that they are subjective or that they could mean something different to everyone. And of course, if we were to ask someone, what are your values? They'd, I guess, lie. So why even ask? And I say to that, absolute baloney. We actually do have values in this country. I mean, I think they're pretty basic ways of life that we live by. Things like equality, freedom to choose religion, freedom of speech, freedom to, you know, love who you want to love. Those, to me, are Canadian values. So I think it's reasonable that we expect those who come to live here also respect and live by those values. I think the PC crowd forgets that immigration, it's not a right. It's a privilege to come to a country like Canada. So why would we want folks coming here who hate our way of life? You know, I look back to my grandfather. You can look back to your grandfathers, your fathers. They went to war to fight for our freedoms and these values that we live by. So are we simply going to say, welcome folks to those who want to destroy those sacrifices? That's how I take a look at this issue. But let's talk to the conservative leadership candidate herself, the woman who made these comments and asked the question that exploded into this debate. She's MP Kelly Leach, and she joins us now. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Alex. So did you know that this simple question would elicit such a reaction? I mean, some folks are calling you (laughs) xenophobic. No, not at all. And I I think we had issued out a a questionnaire that had multiple questions, some on taxation, some on uh, whether you believe in a carbon tax or not, uh, a wide range of questions. But what I'll say is that part of the survey and, and, and this process was to introduce myself to the Conservative Party membership and to the Canadian public. And what it's allowed me to do now is, is to tell them what I believe in. And also, I think now we know that Canadians care deeply about talking about their own values and what we value here in this country. So what and are those me, values? When you, when you yeah. look at our values, you say what? What I say is that I believe in a unified Canadian identity. And the values that I grew up at the dinner table with were equality of opportunity. When you come to this country, if you work hard, you can achieve what you want. And we have to create those, that opportunity for people, especially for our young Canadians. Hard work. Everyone needs to work hard to provide for themselves and their families. And we know when Canadians work hard and they're prosperous, they give back overwhelmingly to their communities. That's a Canadian way of life, that generosity. The generosity for me. But also in that identity for myself and my family, it permits freedom and tolerance, similar to what you were mentioning earlier. And those two values allow us, I think, in this country to pursue our best lives and our best selves. So those are the values that I believe in. Those are the values I think the majority of Canadians believe in. And those are the values that have helped make this country so strong. Are you surprised by the reaction of your colleagues? You know, Rona Ambrose, the interim leader, suggested it was, quote, a badly worded Tony Clement saying that while he would vet uh, that you were going about it, you know, the wrong way. Jason Kenney says it's the wrong approach. I mean, it seems that you are forcing a debate that you, your own party doesn't want to have. They're acting a little bit more liberal than they are conservative. Well, look, I understand their compulsion to go there. But this is about Canadian values. And I've been out speaking to individuals across the country, both in our party, as well as Canadians as as a member of Parliament. And this issue of having a fulsome, thoughtful discussion about what it means to be a Canadian, our own Canadian values, 
has come up again and again and again. And, you know, the reality is, is that our nation was founded on certain values. Hard work, providing for your family, giving back to your community, freedom, tolerance. These are the values that I think we can all agree on. But for myself, I'm looking forward to having that discussion because I think that discussion allows us as a nation to become even stronger. And as you mentioned earlier, you know, it's a privilege to live here in Canada. We live in the best country in the world. There's a reason my family chose to come here in the 1800s and why people want to come to this nation every single day. Because we actually epitomize a value set that's exceptionally important and valued worldwide. So we should embrace it and we should own it. We should be proud of it. But we also need to make sure that we define it. I mean, certainly we we go into conflict uh, to protect rights of others. We, you know, went into Afghanistan, not just to fight the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, but we went to help little girls go to school, that women could could live freely. So we do go and fight in other countries based on the values we believe in. Exactly. And as you mentioned earlier, you know, it's a, it's a Canadian value to respect religions other than your own. It's a, it's a Canadian value to respect other cultures. It's a Canadian value to respect those that have a different sexual orientation than yourself. But it's not a Canadian value to advocate for violence or misogyny. Tolerance and generosity, those are Canadian values. And I'm looking forward to having that discussion. I'm a bit disappointed that my Conservative colleagues are not interested in this discussion or think it's a different discussion. But I can tell you the Conservative membership is very interested in this, and overwhelmingly I'm learning that the Canadian public wants to have this dialogue. And I think it's a healthy one that will allow our nation to become even stronger in the future. Let me hold you here, uh, Kelly, mm-hmm. if I could. And let's take Marcy, because she calls in from Aurora. You say what, Marcy? Hi, Marcy. Hi. I have to applaud you for bringing this out in the open. And I really am ashamed of the other conservatives that have spoken out against I was talking to a friend of mine who graduated university with me in Canada, and she now lives in the States. And she said to me that the Canada we now have is a Canada we won't even recognize in 10 years. And I'm wondering, I even wrote a letter uh, to uh, the Ministry of Immigration asking whether the fact that they're now setting up booths for immigration in China when I know personally of people that have been waiting for four and five years that from Australia, New Zealand, England, South Africa, that have, have waited and want to be, have families, have professions, and now they want to set up booths in China for immigration to speed up the line. And I'm saying, excuse me, let's have a discussion. Let's have a legal discussion on what it means to be a Canadian. And I'm first generation Canadian. And I'm proud to say that my mother came just after the First World War and was offered Canadian citizenship on the basis of her working for one year on a farm out west outside of Kamloops. My father came after the Second World War offering, they offered Canadian citizenship if they worked for seven or eight months I can't remember, up in the northern woods. Mm-hmm. They honored and worked to be a Canadian. And thank you very much for bringing this up. I applaud you. I will vote conservative. I'll sign up. And as far as I'm concerned, you are a win-win and not the other one. Thank you. Wow. Thank you, Marcy. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. NDP policies holding Alberta back. And I wonder, will wild rose country ever bloom again or boom at all? I'm talking about, you know, a province where I first started my career in journalism 20 years ago. You know, Calgary came a calling, I went, and I only spent a couple of years there, but I remember a kind of this wild and exciting time. Real estate was on the rise. The skyline was exploding with development, and there was this tangible feeling that you got success was yours for the taking. It was boom time, thanks to all this development of the oil sands, and there was nothing but this amazing opportunity. There was a growth. There was no debt. And now I I look back, you know, 18 years later, oil is flat, taxes rising, 
For the first time, Albertans' operational budget is now $11 billion and climbing. It seems that Ontario and Alberta are on a race towards the bottom. And it's really hard to imagine that these two mighty provinces, once you know, called the economic engines, they're now a drag on the economy. And if you look at it, it doesn't look like the NDP government has any plan to fix any of it. Their policies seem to be taking the province in the opposite direction. It's this tax and spend and tax and spend and, ooh, let's balloon the debt. So let's break it down of the real financial picture of Alberta. Paige McPherson joins us. She's the Alberta Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Good to talk to you. Yeah, so nice uh, of you to have me, Alex. Thanks very much. Where am I wrong in my analysis? I mean, we got a, a look at the fiscal picture for the first time, I think, this week. Um, and, and yeah, the wildfires did damage to the province's earnings. But the numbers, you know, without those fires, there's other things to blame. Oh, you're absolutely right. No, your analysis is bang on. It is sort of a tax and spend direction that this government is going on. And it is a lot of, uh, of a similar direction that, as to what we've seen in Ontario uh, as well. You're right about the spending. Um, it's, it's increasing setting aside those wildfires. I mean, even if you are to set aside the increased spending that was a result of the wildfires in Fort Mac here, um, the government still in this recent, recent fiscal update increased spending by another $700 million. And this is when we just, our revenues are, are way, way down. And in fact, although the government is blaming here the deficit on those wildfires, um, in fact, the bigger reason is actually that business tax revenues are down. They're down $877 million, which should go to, to teach some people who, you know, do believe in those tax and spend policies as gospel, that sometimes raising business taxes, just like the NDP government did almost immediately after they were elected last year, doesn't always immediately equal more revenues. Uh, in fact, they had a decline in revenues. So that's a big, big part of this is the, the policies that the government um, is, is undertaking here. They're playing a big role in... I. I believe, accelerating the downturn. Yeah, I mean, they'll say that they don't want to do the, the knee-jerk cuts, but they have been in power long enough. So they've had a year and a half that they should be doing something, and it just seems that they're not doing anything. Yeah, that's right. I mean, and it's it sort of reached a, a level of absurdity in this province. I mean, um, we've got a, a very substantive deficit. You're right. It's $11 billion uh, or so when you're talking about operational. We're borrowing for operational spending for the first time in uh, in decades here in Alberta. Um, and when you include the capital spending, that infrastructure spending, we're actually looking at a deficit of $14.5 billion. And yet our government is saying that, you know, they can't make these knee-jerk cuts. But you're right. They've been in power for a, almost a year and a half now. Certainly they've had time to carefully plan out, you know, what kinds of spending trims should be done at a time when, you know, you're talking about a very bloated government employee sector that we have here in this province. Everybody else in the province is making cuts from small business to big business. Um, That's an unfortunate reality of a downturn. And the government just seems uh, to think that they're immune to that. And so they're not making any of those necessary cuts that need to be uh, made right down to the level of laundry services. Alberta Health Services um, here, the provincial health authority in our province identified that you know outsourcing some laundry services for hospitals would save money and this NDP government said no we won't even outsource laundry services we must keep government employees unionized government employees doing the laundry for the beds in our hospitals I mean it really is a level of absurdity I think that they've reached where they just they refuse to make any cuts and, and it's seeming a little ideological you know when you get right down to it sure I mean if you look at Ontario and Alberta they seem to be a carbon copy uh, style of government where they want to drive out business, raise taxes to make up the loss uh, revenue. And, and, you know, pardon my French, but it's ass backwards. It is really just uh, the wrong way to raise revenue. And you know what? The Fraser Institute put out some really interesting numbers um, on that point, which I, I actually found surprising, comparing Ontario and Alberta. Now, Alberta is dealing with an economic shock from low oil prices. Of course, we are. Uh, government policies, as I mentioned, I do think are contributing to the downturn. But of course, low oil prices are, are the major you know, factor that we're facing here. Now, Ontario um, had a similar economic shock when the recession severely impacted uh, the auto sector. Now, Ontario's policy response was to take on a lot of 
debt it would, in an unsustainable way, you know, with no real plan to pay it off, which is exactly sort of the, the tack that our government is taking here in Alberta as well. Our finance minister said balanced budget dates are wishful thinking. Same kind of policies. But if you look at Alberta's per-person deficit this year versus Ontario's per-person deficit in 2009, you know, when they were dealing with that recession, the, Alberta's per-person deficit is actually 55% higher than Ontario's was. So Ontario has an enormous level of debt, but we are certainly, you know, doing everything we can to try and be um, hot on their trail and, and catch up. Um, so if you think Ontario's finances are a mess, well, you know, you got to stay tuned to Alberta because clearly we're, we're following that same path. Yeah, I hate to see the competition, to see who can be the worst. I want to keep you on the line there, Paige, because I want to bring Tim into this conversation. How do you see this, Tim? Hey, Tim, can you hear me? Yeah. How do you see this? Um, I just, I live in Ontario here in the new market, and I see, like, what's happened to Ontario. Uh, the, the people's fault. It's the people's fault, the electorate. And it's the same thing in Alberta. You guys, I mean, in Alberta, they had a right-wing government for years. And then you didn't know what you were going to get bringing an NDP government in? Well, that was a protest vote, and, and, and you're right. I think, you know, and, they were angry at the PCs, get, which right. was deserved. But, Tim, they voted in someone in anger, and now they're stuck with the mess. Well, okay, so you're $11 billion in counting, yep. and your guest there uh, has to catch up about $292 billion to catch up to, can- to Ontario, because Ontario's, what, $310 billion yes. in debt? Oh, no, actually, uh, we're $300 billion now moving up to 350 What's that? We're 300 now, we're going up to 350 Okay, so the, the real conversation here is uh, when do we declare bankruptcy? Yeah. Is, is that ever going to happen in Ontario? Like, when are they ever going to have the, the nerve or the gumption to stand up and say, we're bankrupt? Yeah, I just never thought I would see this in the province of Alberta. I mean, they're sitting on, uh, uh, well, they, you know... They, they, they elected the NDP. Look what happened in Ontario when they elected the NDP, right? Mm-hmm. Look what happened. Another disaster, right? They only know how to spend, rob from the companies, and, and, and rape, rape the, uh, the companies that are paying. And now look what's happened in Ontario. Companies are leaving in droves because of the Green Energy Act, and and the uh, uh, New York State, Maine State, Michigan State are laughing at Ontario right from the beginning when they introduced the uh, Green Energy Act, and they're just laughing all the way to the bank because we're they're taking all our business. Indeed, they are. Tim, thanks for your call. And Paige, you know, it's this kind of you know almost activism government that is costing, certainly costing Alberta, because there's no excuse. Uh, you know, lo- oil prices are low, but, you know, there are things that this current government can do. I mean, is she is, is Miss Notley even attempting to to fight for Alberta growth uh, as far as the oil, you know, going out and talking about pipeline build, uh, building, any of that? Well, they've not been too, too bad on the pipeline front, but I, I mean, certainly when it comes to the policies that will attract business to the province, having low taxes, you know, not increasing regulations, um, the government has been do- doing the exact opposite. They did increase business taxes, as I mentioned, almost immediately as they got in. We saw how that um, played out. It didn't equal larger revenues for them, but they, you know, they're also increasing things um, for business. They've increased the minimum wage. They're increasing it uh, by quite a substantial amount here. That makes it difficult for businesses. The, um, the property tax portion that's provincial is going up. That's really difficult for businesses. Um, They're including, you know, they're instituting emissions caps. Uh, A lot of different regulatory and tax uh, policies that are are just simply not business friendly. And uh, and in addition to that, you know, based on what Tim said about the Green Energy Act, absolutely right. I mean, people in Alberta that I talk to are looking at Ontario, looking at the impact that all the corporate welfare to those big green energy companies has had on electricity prices. I know I read the Ontario Auditor General report finding that on-peak electricity prices are up 77%. People in Alberta, as we do the same thing that um, Premier Wynne in Ontario did, um, where we're shutting down coal plants and we are embarking on a new green energy corporate welfare um, policy direction, you know, they're, they're looking at these ener- electricity prices and they're, they're quite worried about it. Um, but I will say one more thing in response to Tim, just to stick up for the Alberta electorate. This is not really uh, what the government campaigned on. They campaigned um, on a balanced budget date. They had a balanced budget date. Their government then, um, you know, revoked that. They changed it multiple times. As I mentioned, the finance minister basically threw it out the window and says that said that it's wishful thinking to, to assign a bu- balanced budget date. They campaigned on a much smaller deficit mm-hmm. number that we're, than we're seeing in reality. Uh, so so like we see in many election campaigns... Politicians lie, campaign, don't say... 
You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. If you, you know, one of the millions, a few millions of supporters for Donald Trump, then I guess you belong in a, quote, basket of deplorables. Yep. That's what Hillary Clinton told an audience in New York. It was a big fundraising event held by Barbara Streisand. So that's where Hillary Clinton decided to call Trump supporters pretty much every name in the book. Take a listen for yourself. We are living in a volatile political environment. You know, to just be grossly generalistic, you could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Right? The racist, sexist, homophobic, xenophobic, Islamophobic, you name it. And unfortunately, there are people like that. And he has lifted them up. Yep. Basket of deplorables. Yep. We're talking average middle class Americans, teachers, emergency workers, veterans, union workers. Clinton classified millions of middle class Americans irredeemable, not American. So while it was very funny to the American elite, the Hollywood rich folks in that room, it played very big. It will not with the average American. I say that this is indeed her Mitt Romney 47 percent moment. And she quickly apologized. Oh, yes, she 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 didn't mean to say it quite like that. That's what she's saying now. I mean, if Donald Trump is so god-awful, then why isn't Hillary Clinton soaring in the polls? She's already lost her lead. They're tied. All she's doing now is defending herself, defending herself for all the corruption. She's accused of things like treason, lying, all those emails she erased. She erased. I mean, take a look to this brutally blunt question from a Navy yet at the Commander-in-Chief Forum that took place on Thursday night. As a naval flight officer, I held a top secret sensitive compartmentalized information uh, clearance, and that provided me access to materials and information highly sensitive to our warfighting capabilities. Had I communicated this information not following prescribed protocols, I would have been prosecuted and imprisoned. Secretary Clinton, how can you expect those such as myself, who were and are entrusted with America's most sensitive information, to have any confidence in your leadership as president when you clearly corrupted our national security? Ouch. Trust is a, a big issue for Clinton. I mean, a lot of critics believe those emails linked to the Clinton Foundation. Don't know what that is? Well, it's a, an initiative set up by Bill and Hill on this premise of charity, helping those in need. It could be the Haiti, uh, where the Haiti natural disaster destroyed the country, or money for HIV AIDS in third world countries. Millions raised for that. But the money never got to those, in fact. The checks and balances just don't add up. And now in recent weeks, it's been revealed that the foundation operated as a scheme of pay to play with hundreds of millions given to donors and mostly from countries like, you know, Saudi Arabia, where feminism isn't all the rage as this feminist type presidential hopeful claims. I mean, she's made all this money and she did so while the secretary of state, my next guest calls it a charity fraud of epic proportions. Charles Ortel joins me now. He is a Wall Street analyst who specializes in covering financial discrepancies in things like the Clinton Foundation, and he's one of the main whistleblowers of the foundation. Good to have you, sir. Thank you, Alex, for having me on. All right, I got to start with uh, what happened last night before we get into all the Clinton Foundation. So will the basket of deplorables comment cost Hillary Clinton? I think it's an enormous mistake. You know, right now here in New York City, where I am, uh, we have the U.S. Open going on, and when I was a kid, I, I never played at that level, but I liked to play tennis. And you learn when you play it hard that you can often win against an opponent who, you know, just blows the match. And I think Hillary blew the match. I mean, the problem here in this country and maybe in Canada is that, you know, nothing seems to have worked to get the economy back on a growth track, right? It was soaring when Bill Clinton was president for a while. Then the bubble blew up. But really, since about 2000, nothing, whether it's lowering interest rates, deficit spending, and everybody who's working in the real world, not in this fantasy world where politicians and elites all meet you know, and congratulate one, one another for being smart, uh, but in the real world where people are trying to put foot on the, food on the table, competing against machines that are replacing them, um, you know, work, working with everyday problems, unable to save money, worried about a financial crash, worried that their children get drafted into some stupid war somewhere, uh, in that real world, 
people understand that there are vexing problems because they see them every day in their lives. And they're different approaches. They're the old school, you know, Marxists who unfortunately now teach and are professors and run foundations around the world, you know, who try to shape public opinion to, to you know, get us to suck up to even more big, unaccountable government. There are people like that, and those are the Clintons and their elites. There are people, to be fair, in the bush wing of the, of the Republican Party who want the same thing but a different approach with government. And, you know, to make anything happen uh, in 2017 going forward, you're going to have to work together. And the, what she did with that comment, which was what she really believes, is signal not only that she, look, she believes that a large – we're not talking about two people here – 25% of Trump supporters, which are, let's say, half the country, half mm -hmm. the, well, that's a lot of people, are in her mind you – know, half of the Trump supporters, 25% of the voting people in this country, are, quote, irredeemable and worthy of persecution. You're supposed to have an intervention. This tells us what this lady will do with her team – you know, Bill Clinton and the families and the henchmen and the cronies, that we know what they do when they get in the White House. We know what they tried last time. Sure. But look, not a lot sticks to Hillary Clinton. I mean, she's not Bill Clinton, so she can't write off of that popularity. Hillary has different issues, um, even different issues than Barack Obama. A lot of people just... They'll vote for her. They'll hold their nose voting for her, but they don't like her. She's not a likable person. Well, again, I, I agree with you, but I mean, let's let's t think about that a little bit. Here I am in New York, and I think I know the situation. I'm not a political expert, but I know you know New York reasonably well. And you know, she holds out the fact. Her her thesis is the following: because I was elected a senator in New York, where you could actually, if you put it, slap a Democrat against any Republican, you could probably elect a dead person <laughs> with a Democrat against any Republican <laughs> in this state because there's so many Democrats. Sure. Her argument is that because she won senator and was reelected that the public has the public knows about her past and they've given her an a let's move on they that's just a ridiculous argument no because she's running on the policies of the last administration and they're terrible policies that have hurt the country in not just economically but militarily i mean the the united states is not a country i now recognize anymore and i think a lot of americans are looking at it and that's why they're turning to trump right and it's not, you know, for her to allege, I mean, it's the oldest playbook, and it's a sad playbook. It's the kind of playbook, frankly, that Democrats used in the South um, mm. for decades. But to, to say that if you don't support Hillary Clinton, then you're obviously a racist, that's outrageous comments. Yeah, outrageous. and that was one that Bill Clinton had made in a speech just a couple of days. He said, you know, to, to, to say the quote, to make America great, would make you a racist. And... Uh, you know, remember, remember what happened. I'll refresh everyone's recollection that in 2008, uh, Bill Clinton approached Ted Kennedy and referred to Barack Obama and said it's all a fantasy and that, you know, 10 or 20 years ago, this guy would be fetching us coffee. That's a quote from Bill Clinton. And that quote so enraged Ted Kennedy, not somebody I terribly admire, but so enraged Ted Kennedy that he immediately put the Kennedys behind Obama. I mean, you know, that's, you know, that's the way Bill Clinton speaks. And remember the issues of Hillary Clinton in unguarded moments, referring to people of Jewish faith the way she refers to them. Now, this is not somebody who, you know, has an unblemished record. Um, and, you know, it's just ridiculous. She, she, she showed her true colors in a way that should scare the living daylights out of anybody, you know, who is contemplating what life would be like in America and around the world should she get the levers of power. Yeah, because now what's going to happen is we're going to have T-shirts with basket of deplorables. There's going to be memes. There's going to be 24-7 coverage on this one moment, much like what happened to Mitt Romney in the last election when he was caught on tape, essentially saying 47 percent of Americans are welfare bums. Right. I, I can tell you, quite frankly, I was just on the phone with I have this good friend, Kathleen Willey. We know about her background. Mm -hmm. She's mm -hmm. a wonderful human being, persecuted by Hillary Clinton. She's already working on various <laughs> very amusing Bumper stickers and T-shirts, honk if you're deplorable. I'm deplorable and adorable. I mean, this is going to, you know, if Saturday Night Live, when it gets back in business, I mean, this is going to be one of the epic banana peel moments in politics. It was a horrible, idiotic statement on her part, and she's doubled down. I mean, the campaign immediately yeah. doubled down on it. Yeah, Can't they apologized, but it was an apology with a but. Can't walk it back. Yeah, it, it, it's back. quite something. I wasn't expecting that I would have that to talk about with you today, but I'm glad uh, that I had you on today to be able to, you know, get a sense of how it's playing uh, on the other side of the border. 
You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. We're going to head out to BC now where an interesting discussion is being had. And to paraphrase uh, my next guest, he says, if he were alive today, Tommy Douglas would not be happy. And this is from a B.C. doctor at the center of a unique charter challenge that launched in a B.C. court earlier this week. And it's a challenge, I think, that if successful is precedent setting because it would result, I think, in sweeping changes to our universal health care system, a system we like to convince ourselves is wonderful. But these days, I would say it doesn't even come close because every day we're hearing more and more stories involving people who can't get timely care. Well, Dr. Brian Day wants to change that, and he's fighting for Medicare freedom. Back in 2009, the doctor launched a charter challenge against the B.C. government. That's seven years ago. Seven years because of so many delays by the government itself. Well, that case is now in front of a judge. And at the core of this case is long wait lists that cause needless suffering and laws that prevent patients from getting timely care elsewhere. Dr. Brian Day joins me now, and I should point out that you are an orthopedic surgeon, but I I read your resume, and it would take up most of the half an hour, but you've been on multiple medical associations, foundations. You're very involved in medicine as a whole. So you come to this argument, I think, with a real care and passion about how it works. Yes. I mean, I've traveled the world, and I've seen what health systems are like in countries like Canada, well, similar economic levels to Canada, Germany, Switzerland. I've li- lived and worked in Switzerland, Holland and Denmark and places like that that, that have social programs that um, are on a par and mostly exceed ours. And the, 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 the difference in terms of healthcare is they don't have a state monopoly on the um, funding and delivery of medical and hospital care. That, that um, competition, we know, um, improves things and just a few weeks ago at the annual meeting of the Canadian Medical Association here in Vancouver uh, the federal minister um, were on on stage said well yes this recent ranking from the Commonwealth Fund we came out 10th out of 11 developed countries and, and yet we're near the, in terms of quality and efficiency and and um, and um, fairness equity uh, but we're near the top in cost. And um, the only country ranked worse than us was the United States uh, in those kind of criteria. So the the federal minister then was asked, well, what are you going to do about it? And she responded, well, I have to meet with the other 13 ministers of health. And therein lies one of the big problems with Canada. You know, We have a, a health ministry for every two and a quarter to two and a half million people, whereas Germany with 80 million people has one minister minister and ministry of health and they have no wait lists and they have a hybrid system and, and that's what we're looking for the courts to rule rule on in, in our um, constitutional challenge and, and this case involves your clinic it also uh, represents six other patients some of who died because this case took so long to get to court which is, which is an absolute uh, you know travesty um, but you say you're fighting for for the two million Canadians still waiting for care Yes, I mean, we, um, there were two cancer patients, that adults that have died. Um, they suffered from delays in their diagnosis and treatment under the system. And, um, and then um, amongst the remaining um, plaintiffs, we have three children who suffered under the health system and one other cancer patient. One of the children was 16 years of age and after a 27-month wait to get into the BC Children's Hospital here, for serious spine surgery, he has ended up um, paralyzed for life. He was previously um, riding a bike and playing football, and, mm-hmm. and uh, no child should wait over two years for necessary medical treatment. You you have stated that Tommy Douglas would not be happy. Uh, why do you say that? Because the Stats Canada and, and, and the, all of the statistics actually will demonstrate that the worst access and the worst health outcomes in the Canadian health system are in the poor and underprivileged, the very group of of individuals and and, and population that Tommy Douglas was trying to to offer health care to. 
and um, and um, so the system is not doing what it wanted to do. You know, uh, this what our opponents talk about. Oh, a private system will be for the rich. Well, the, that is um, such a distractor. We know in every society on earth, the rich never suffer. A, 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 Ro- a lawyer, health lawyer from Rome, recently emailed me saying. He's looked at our system. He's actually written a long article on the trial in Italian, and he says he was surprised. His conclusion was the Canadian health system was designed for rich people who could afford to go to the United States when they needed necessary treatment. What is exactly holding us back? Why is the government limping along? Is it special interests? Is it the unions? I mean, why is it? I mean, I know that it's hard for Canadians to even have this conversation about, you know, access to private care, but why is it that we don't have health freedom in this country? Well, um, you, you, you hit the nail on the head. It, it is special interest. It's those who are um, obviously, you know, as I said, we have 14 ministries of health when we should have one. Um, the bureaucracy that has built up around it is, is a self-serving group of individuals. And um, we have we have for every one public health bureaucrat in Germany, which has no wait list in the public or the private system, the difference there being that if you have a private room in a hospital, you might get a nicer room and a glass of wine. But we have, they have one public health bureaucrat in the public system. For, for we have 11 times as, for, for every one they have, we have 11. And they're consuming that's why when we're ranked alongside European countries, um, there's a group out of Sweden and Belgium that did that. They put us in alongside 29 countries. We came out ranked 23rd in quality and last in value for money. So we're spending a lot to get little. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. We're having an honest discussion with Dr. Brian Day, who is at the center of a unique charter challenge that he hopes to win so that he can give, well, I guess, for lack of a better term, health freedom to Canadians. And before the break, we were touching upon the point that this is not the first time we've seen this kind of challenge. Back in 2005, the Supreme Court of Canada ruled on a case involving a Quebec doctor that found patients were needlessly waiting, even dying. So... Quebecers are given the right to access private insurance. So, Dr. Day, I think the, the, the logical question is, why doesn't that precedent go for the rest of us? Are we somehow less uh, less important in the rest of Canada? Well, uh, you raise a very valid point. In, in fact, um, it was ruled on Quebec has its own charter, which is mm-hmm. very similar to the Canadian charter. And some of Canada's leading constitutional lawyers believe it does um, apply outside of Canada. Our trial will certainly be precedent-setting, and, and one of, the, of course, one of the arguments we're we're raising is is should Canadians that don't live in Quebec have the same rights and, and to protect the protection um, of life, liberty, and security of person, and to protect their health that citizen that Canadians who live in Quebec have, and um, because um, we are supposed to be one country, and 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 so. I mean, similarly, there's a recent um, well-publicized case on assisted dying, the assisted suicide case, in which the Supreme Court of Canada um, granted Canadians who are dying the right to die without pain and suffering. And we're, we're fighting for the rights of Canadians who are living to live without pain and suffering. And to me, um, I think that um, those are the kinds of arguments that we're putting before the court and we're very pleased that it's a judge now that's going to decide based on evidence and data and facts and not the the whirlwind of rhetoric that we've heard from opponents and supporters of the status quo i'm sure you're familiar with a young um, 18 year old girl who died in in Ontario this year called Laura Hillier. Mm-hmm. I'd encourage any of your listeners to Google that and you will listen to this young girl yeah. dying words as she had waited and and uh, had her surgery cancelled for a transplant and died. This children dying on wait lists is 
uncivilized in in a in a rich country like Canada and in a free and democratic society. This is not not. This should not happen. No, I mean, we've got cases of either long wait times or or simply the government decides that your treatment isn't worth it because you're too sick. I mean, take the, the case for uh, Trent Hill's mayor, Hector McMillan, who has essentially been told by the province, you know, your treatment is not worth us paying because it's out of out of country. Uh, so therefore, you know, you're on your own. And, and this guy can't get $300,000 to fight his pancreatic cancer. So he's essentially been given a death sentence and he's fighting that. But I put these cases, you know, similarly because we seem to pick and choose the cases that will get treated. Whoops, I've lost you. Hi, can you hear me? Oh, there you can are. Can you hear me now? I got you. Can you hear me now? Yep. Yeah. So one of the plaintiffs that died in our, while waiting for trial was an 80-year-old um, woman who had terminal lung cancer. She actually had one lung removed mm-hmm. and was given 18 months to live. And uh, But she was, you know, a, in good shape. She could play nine holes of golf. She had a dog that she used to walk every day. And she tore a meniscus in her knee, which caused her a severe limp. Um, but not an emergency. Like she was, so she went to try and get treated, and was told, "Oh, it's going to be 18 months." In other words, a death sentence or or life imprisonment um, with because of pain. So she was one of the patients that went to our clinic. She was not wealthy, but she owned her own home, and and um, and she paid a few thousand dollars, um, um, and ended up with 15 months to 18 months of quality of life now she shouldn't have to pay that amount of money mm-hmm. we should be allowed to buy as they are in all of the um, in fact every country on earth um, she should be allowed to buy insurance and and you know people shouldn't have to come up with a few thousand dollars but we i think canadians don't realize we are the only country on earth that makes it unlawful to buy private health insurance for hospital and medical services. The only yeah. country on earth. Yeah, and let me point out, though, I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, we do have private care. I mean, Saskatchewan, you can get private-funded uh, MRIs. In Ontario, if you pay four or 5000 bucks, you can go and get MedCan. I mean, we do have these private services, but for whatever reason, no one wants to talk about it. Yes, and, and 70% of Canadians have private insurance for drugs, yeah. physiotherapy and dentistry, which, by the way, in the countries that I've mentioned, are part of the public system that you don't pay for. So um, this is partly about choice. It's partly about freedom. You know, I remember asking Roy Romano when um, when he was in charge of the Commission on Healthcare. I said, you know, we can spend our money on alcohol, on um, on tobacco. Uh, we can spend our money now and now on on gamb oh spend on gambling and now even marijuana. How can you possibly have a law that says you can't spend that money on your own health? And of course, like politicians, um, they don't answer the question. They they divert to yeah. something else. But but that's the, these are the kinds of points that we're we're raising in court and and. And those opponents who say, well, it won't be equal, they need a reality check because it's not equal. It's all, no, and it as, isn't. And Look, as I said, it's the poor and underprivileged in this country, going back to Tommy Douglas, sure. that are suffering the most. Let me ask you this quickly before I let you go. Um, you know, there will be those who say, you just want to make more money. Doctors just want to make more money. And you say what? Well, um, I, I can tell you, we're not a prop. We, we don't make um a big profit out of uh, less than 10% of the patients we treat at our clinic are patients in this category. We mostly treat injured workers and uh, uh, that are um, covered by work, workers' mm-hmm. compensation. Private clinics that do exist in BC currently take 60,000 patients out of the public system. So if they didn't exist, there'd be 60,000 extra people on the public wait list and it would get even worse. So so they're, they're already providing a service. Um, doctors doctors um, are well paid. I'm not going to, this is not about that. This is about, we have- Doctor, I'm sorry, I'm absolutely out of time. I do have to cut you off. I'm sorry, I'm up against a hard That's break. Okay. Um, but I should say that this is going to be a very, very long, long expensive fight and it will be likely ending up in the Supreme Court of Canada. 
You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. An interesting headline caught my eye this week involving a school principal accused of posting, quote, anti-Muslim Facebook posts. And I will go to the phones on this at some point. So drop me a line at 416-870-6400 or star 640 on your cell phone. Or, of course, toll free, 1-888-8225-TALK, 1-888-225-TALK. Because this is one of those, I think this is one of those debatables, but... uh, These anti-Muslim Facebook posts, I don't actually think, are racist. And I should point out that the principal in question who posted them is Arab. But they do pose questions about issues involving radicalized Muslims. But unless I'm missing something, and you can tell me if I am, I'm not seeing racism. And yet this Toronto area uh, teacher is now under investigation by the Toronto area school board to see if she was out of line so here are some examples of what she posted. And these are like the kinds of things that you see in a news, like a headline, and she would post them. So, quote, Muslim takeovers of Paris and London and the articles expressing concerns around bringing refugees to Canada, given their terrorist sympathies. Another post headlined, must see Dutch mayor tells fellow Muslims they can blank off if they don't like freedom. A question. Is this blatantly spreading hate? Should educators be able to post anything? I mean, is this what I'm seeing? Is this not an issue of free speech? Because if I'm looking at those posts, she's simply putting things out there that are part of a discussion in the media. I don't understand if it's just, are all the officials in our life, or all the government bigwigs, are they just protecting us from our own opinions? Or is it inappropriate for people in a leadership position like a principal a teacher should they just be silenced because I'm not picking up any racist overtones what I'm sensing is this teacher putting out there conversation pieces my next guest wrote is this Islamophobia being used to silence reason voices. Tarek Fatah joins me now to discuss what he wrote. He is, of course, the author of several books, including The Hindu is Not My Enemy, The Jew is Not My Enemy, and The Tragic Illusion of an Islamic State. So you've written a lot uh, about these types of, of issues. And Tarek, at first blush, what I see is condemnation of radical Islam, not Muslims. She is denouncing radicalization. So why, why should she be in trouble? Well, she's in trouble because the Toronto Star chose to put her in trouble. Uh, there was one um, uh, person uh, who got in touch with a Muslim reporter of the Toronto Star who has a long history of links of training Islamists in how to reach out or influence decision-making in newspapers. Now she works there. So this was this became the main lead. What is tragic is that Arab Christians have been escaping uh, the tyranny of the Middle East, where Islamists have made their uh, you know life uh, hell. I mean, Bethlehem is no longer a Christian majority city, so they've come here all the way. Uh, there can be a case made that school principals should not be. Uh, taking part in such discussions. But here's the other part. Almost every school in uh, Metro Toronto or any urban center of Canada, the United States, has a functioning Muslim Brotherhood unit within that school. Uh, It usually has a prayer room, which is dominated and operated by the Muslim Students Association, uh, which is a group that the Muslim Brotherhood uh, has uh, claimed to be, quote-unquote, one of our, uh, uh, you know, offshoots. And they've been in operation since the early 60s. Initially, they were backed by the State Department to, uh, during the Cold War. It was sponsored by the Americans. But they are widespread in every university campus, in every uh, middle school or high school. And so if that's going on, and that's permitted, then uh, let a school principal 
who is an Arab Christian, who has seen what has happened to her community uh, from Lebanon to Egypt to Syria. You know, 2,000-year-old Christian communities have been uprooted and literally been thrown out. Unfortunately, none of them qualify to be refugees in Canada. You've got to be a radical jihadi sometimes to qualify to come here. So she expressed a point of view. And if you notice the people who uh, rallied around her uh, in her defense were Muslim Mm -hmm. uh, members of the community who said that they too came here uh, to escape the tyranny of the Islamists. But various levels of government from the municipal level to the provincial to the federal, whether it's CNN or you know, whatever, whichever network, for example, just about 10 minutes ago, I saw on, CB, uh, on CNN, uh, leading up to the 15th anniversary of 9-11, they were presenting Muslims as victims of 9-11 uh, and how their life has been traumatized by the attack. I mean, so this is going on. Ordinary uh, people who are not politically involved uh, should have some space to voice their opinion, and uh, Facebook and Twitter do allow us all to express uh, our uh, side of the uh, world because we all have nine to five jobs, whether she's a school principal or somebody's a bus driver. The Islamists uh, have to have all the time in the world because they're Saudi-funded mosques that uh, allow this preaching to go on. So why pick on a woman mm-hmm. who herself, her family, her community is traumatized by how they've been uprooted from the historical, traditional Christian land, and they've become foreigners in their own uh, area? So uh, even if she was Islamophobic, I would understand, but no, nothing she said was against Islam or Muslims. And uh, this was the Toronto Star showing... Uh, why so many people refer to it as the Taliban style. Yeah. I mean, where I, where I do agree with you, Tarek, is that I'm not a big fan of, of someone who may be teaching students. I, you know, I would like them to keep their politics away uh, unless they provide a balanced view of both sides. That's just me. But well, then, if then, you're... Uh, then shut down all the sure. Muslim Brotherhood centers and, in every school. And, that's, and if you're telling us that there are other teachings that are going on, you know, that to me is a far more troubling issue. Of course it is, but who's going to listen to what I or this principal are going to say? We don't have that sort of a clout. You know, we middle-class people who come here about paying our mortgages or someone like me who's retired, I write a weekly column. What can we do? Because uh, I joke about it, we're simply not ugly enough to be considered authentic Muslims. Everyone's looking for their designated bearded fellow or a hijabi uh, to praise. And it's white guilt combined with Saudi capital. And that potent combination is enough to destroy Western civilization. Let me bring in Virginia, who is on the phone. She joins us uh, in Hamilton. And I think, you know, Tarek, this kind of relates to what we talked about earlier in the show when I was, had Kelly Leach on talking about I mean, we can't even ask people Canadian values. But let, let, <laughs> let, let's have Virginia comment. What do you have to say, Virginia? Tariq, I'm so happy to hear that you're alive and well and still living in Canada. I have missed you so much as a I'm alive, I'm alive. Hallelujah. Look, you are so good, and I'm so glad. Uh, Please um, keep him on me. Keep him in your your itinerary, please, Uh, Alex. I do as often as I can, but he's a busy guy. He's hard to get. Yeah, well, we don't hear enough of him. Look, exactly. This is reflective of what should have happened 20 years ago when we have the, the, the floodgates of immigration coming into Canada under Chrétien. Um, now we're reaping the whirlwind. Can I interject here for a second? It's none of these people are immigrants. They were born over here. The hate mongers were born here. You will hardly ever meet an immigrant who has time to hate anything. Tariq, the children who were born here are uh, more radicalized than the parents. That's what I'm saying, but where did the radicalization come from? It didn't come from the supermarket or from the TV. It came from people that came over in the first place and have inculcated a kind of 
feeling that the, the world at the moment is not good enough. We must change it. So the people, the second generation, even the third generation, are the ones that we're dealing with. It doesn't matter. It has infiltrated into the society. I do understand that. And furthermore, when you look at the amount of immigrants that come in from the Middle East, the, uh, the Arab Christians are about 1% out of 99% of the new refugees that have come in to the country. And I, I see them here in my own community, and they most certainly do not look at the moment that they're really ready to be inculcated into the stream of our society. They but are that's very... Not their fault. Pardon? It's white guilt that is at fault. It's not their fault. Nobody, nobody dare tell them that uh, dogs are wonderful animals, for example. Everybody's putting... Uh, I've got two forms over here from the York Region Education Board that, te- that is asking parents, Muslim parents in the York Region, to ta- uh, giving them an option to stay out of so many activities. That's not come about by the parents. I mean, the parents who shared the notes with me saying, what the hell is going on? What's wrong with Canada? You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. At the beginning of the show, I had Kelly Leach on. And Tarek, you know that she has been under fire for throwing out the question that we should be asking immigrants who come to this country about their values. And a new poll just came out this afternoon and 67% of Canadians, 67% of Canadians agree with her. And yet, widely reported in the media, she has been condemned for that. In fact, she's been called xenophobic. I mean, she, we are not apparently allowed to speak about this, but most Canadians do agree with it. They do, but uh, you, you, uh, as you reported, she came under fire from her own part. Mm-hmm. This is what's uh, disturbing. <laughs> yes. Because uh, everyone seems to believe that winning the leadership of a political party depends on how many ethnic tribes you can collect under your shoulder. Mm-hmm. This has become the formula for winning nominations. That is why you don't have, I think, in Mississauga, not a single white face. Uh, the same is true of uh, large parts of Scarborough. The reason being that to win a nomination, you have to fill a room with instant members of any political party. So the power brokers or the vote of the vote banks, these are the guys who have now taken on themselves to fill rooms like private contractors, to get delegates to leadership conventions, whether it is, uh, you know, Polish Canadians or Tamil Canadians or Sikhs or you know it used to be at one time the orange order versus the irish catholics Mm -hmm. now it is a multitude of groups and to win the leadership contest uh, many of these candidates who criticized her are eyeing on oh if i sided on her side what will happen to that Egyptian group that sure. promised me 25 delegates? Or those Amadi Muslims who uh, promised 200 delegates to Harper and <laughs> not one appeared anywhere. Yeah. So uh, th- this is the type of politics of degeneration and uh, lack of ideology, lack of thinking. Uh, we descended into tribalism uh, that befits uh, uh, probably... Uh, the 15th or the 16th century, but it's become mainstream. Uh, mainstream. So what Leach is saying are the facts. Yes. And uh, you see uh, some uh, traits of this in south of the border where Mr. Trump has raised these issues. These are not left-right issues. You need Western civilization to have a right and a left. Sure. You don't have Western civilization, there is no right or left. But he's in a basket of deplorables, Tarek. And and, and I've only got a couple of minutes, and I did want to raise this with you, but in the UK, I read an article today that the police there are now considering allowing women to wear burqas. Burqas (laughs) on duty, not hijabs, not headscarves, full-on burqas. And and to me, I think they've lost their marbles. 
It's not just that. We had an accident a day before yesterday at a factory where a woman wearing a hijab on a second shift got entangled in a tragic death. But instead of reporting on the security hazards of wearing a niqab on the factory floor, look at what the newspapers reported. Mm -hmm. Zero, nothing. Or they buried it in paragraph nine, as in the Toronto Star. And the Ministry of Labor went after the factory. Not after dress codes, not after security issues. What happens if a woman comes over there? We've got, we're looking at the world upside down and we are buried under two factors, white guilt and Saudi money. And a lot of politicians that are all too happy to look the other way Absolutely. while, as you say, building up their vote. Tarek? Yep. You take that, care. You take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.